This episode is brought to you by Skilljar. In customer education, we know that trained customers are your best customers, which is why companies turn to Skilljar to drive adoption, retention, and efficiency, support their products, and to build healthier, more profitable organizations and strengthen the power of your brand. You don't say, well, just look at some of the great companies that use Skilljar to power their own training programs. That's companies like LinkedIn, Cisco, U-Haul, Spotify, and more. They all trust Skilljar to train their customers, partners, or even employees. And I like that it's well-architected with quality connectors and integrations to Salesforce and HubSpot. We both appreciate their amazing partnership from their customer success team. Get your personal demo for Skilljar at skilljar.com. Customer training made easy. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we take customer education myths and misconceptions and throw them in the laundry chute, never to be seen again. I'm Adam Evermescu. I am Dave Darrington. And hey, Adam, it's a special time of year, isn't it? You know what time it, it is? Uh, love is in the air. Mm, no, it's uh, it's July. <laughs> oh, okay. well, what 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 time of year is it? Is it is it national national something? National Butterbean Day. No, national it is Butterbean Day. National Junk Food Day. That that's a great that's the greatest time of the year ever. Oh gosh, and with me <laughs> needing to to diet as it is. Yeah, unfortunately, I think every time of year is National Junk Food Day for me. <laughs> Especially now living in Amsterdam, where like so many of the, the regional foods are essentially just like fried, Ooh. fried carbs. Ooh, like what? Give me an example. What's really good? Uh, Not like to have get you off ever tried bitterballen? Mm, no, I can't say that I have. What is it? It's, it's a, a Dutch regional uh, or national, you might say, food. Uh, it's very typical here. You'd have it with a beer and it's mm. uh, sort of like a, like a fried ball of like gravy sort of is the best best way i could put well, it we just skipped everything and went right to that's like fried twinkies or <laughs> fried butter yeah no it's like it's, I mean, look, it's quite it's quite nice with a beer i will say that uh you know so are so are some frites with uh mayonnaise and peanut sauce i'm very european now i promise uh mm. but you know this this stuff's good so let's let's celebrate that for national junk food day but dave that this is actually not where i thought you were going with this i thought I thought you were going to tell me that uh, it was report season. It is report season. Yes, 2022. And today uh, we're going to, we're actually, we're going to do some minis here. So we'll kick off the first of three. And we're going to talk about three different reports. One from the TSIA, one from Thought Industries and IDC. And the last one is from Skilljar. So well, lots yeah. of stuff to talk about. Lots of stuff to talk about. Lots of stuff to talk about. And I, I, I just want to start with maybe a few thoughts about these reports, because, look, I think it's great that we're multiple years into this project. We've been covering yeah. these reports on C-Lab pretty much every year that they've come out. And we've been doing this podcast. Uh, in fact, I think we've seen some of these reports launch in the time we've been doing this show. Uh, and it's really nice to see that these reports are now coming out more continuously. They're becoming an annual thing. And for us, I think it's also really interesting to keep track of what's changed and, and stays the same, as well as I think each year kind of brings a zeitgeist in terms of uh, what are some of the things that the reports are focusing on, where there's actually commonalities between what all three of them are measuring. 
Yeah, I like that. It's kind of important. I was thinking about this when I was just kind of like walking along last night about how we need this. Every year we need to go, okay, what has changed? What's improved? What's different? How did COVID impact things? Now what's after COVID that we have to deal with? The world is changing. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, if we're going to start kicking this off, one of the things I'm really interested in is, is definitely seeing what's new now as COVID's kind of trending down, you know, kind of, not really. Now we're in 2022. We've changed a lot of the things we've we've done across these three reports. What is it that, well, let's just get into it because there's, there's things that, that kind of surprised and validated me and I thought were very interesting. Where do you want to start, Adam? We're going to start with Skilljar to begin with? Yeah, let's start with Skilljar to begin with. And I think before we dive into these reports, let's maybe just spend a moment on just kind of how to read and analyze these reports because... I think we're going to see more of them coming out over time. And maybe it's worth spending a moment on actually looking at as these reports come out, how do you really know what you're looking at? So right. for instance, like when we look at the reports, there's some things that we look at to try to figure out what the reports are really telling us and how they've collected the information. So for instance, most valid reports are going to tell you what their data collection claims are, who they surveyed, how they surveyed them. Uh, so, for example, in the Skilljar report, I think you're going to see that this one is is mostly collected from Skilljar's customer base. And in fact, they bring in their own product data to supplement the claims that they make. And right, the other reports right. you'll see kind of similar similar methodologies published. But I think it's really important. You've got to look at that. You've got to look at like what's the sample size? What's the relevance of the people who are sampled? So, for instance, like if you have a customer education report out there where they they didn't sample customer education people, mm -hmm. then maybe that's skewing the data somehow. I don't know. What else, Dave? What would you look at to kind of determine how effective the, the report is? Categories. I like the fact that you'd said, hey, who actually are, who's the audience? Uh, I know one of the reports straddles both like the education services and the customer education. Actually, two of them do. I think the TSIA and the TI and IDC one to some degree. You want to understand that the questions that I find myself asking is like, what's the end? The end is that, you know, how big is that sample size? How statistically relevant is it? How deep did they go? How did they conduct a survey? All those things are really good. I mean, I was a scientist. <laughs> I look for these things. How do you have good quantifiable data unless just making up a, an impression or not settling your hypothesis with fact? Yeah, like I think ultimately what this comes down to is when you read the report, do you trust the way that the data was collected? Does yeah. the information you're reading make sense? If it doesn't make sense, it's definitely worth looking at how the data was collected. And even if it does make sense, it's probably worth still looking at how the data was collected just to make sure you're not feeding into your your confirmation bias. And, and again, mm -hmm. I think one way to look at that, and this is going to tie into, for instance, the Skilljar report that we're looking at today, you have to kind of look at if the claims are appropriate. So for example, if an LMS is surveying its own customer base and then presenting data based on that, that's an appropriate claim versus, say, if you are collecting data from kind of like a random sample of customer education professionals and then trying to make a claim that this is this represents the entire state of the industry, well, you really want to make sure then that that the actual people who participated are representative of the industry as a whole. So like in a way, you've, exactly. you've got to look at like, whether the claim that's being made is appropriate and is kind of appropriately humble. <laughs> so put your BS detector on uh, full. <laughs> that's what you're saying. Now, most of these were reputable agencies. 
These are, yeah. I think all the reports that we're going to cover today are good. They all cite their methodologies and we'll dive into that. But just wanted to start with a little bit of report intelligence there because this is just an important piece whenever you interpret anything like that. And uh, we only really get report season to comment on this. So thought we would start there. Yeah. Well, let's dive into it. And I think we said the first report that we're going to bring up is the skill jar 2022 benchmarks and trends for customer education. So that was pretty recently published a a month or two ago. So it's uh, as of today where this is relevant and current. Well, let's talk about who they were looking at. Again, I think this is one of the vendors that you were talking about, survey their own sample data, their own community. Yeah, this is primarily Skilljar talking to Skilljar's customers, right? So like they call out upfront that this heavily weighted towards tech companies because that's a big part of Skilljar's customer base. And in terms of the size of the companies that they were working with, mostly the tech companies were between 200 and 1,000 employees, but also an additional... 40% of the respondents are still a very significant chunk between on the lower end, 51 to 200, and then on the higher end, 1,000 to 10,000. So you kind of had this like higher band, even though the main cluster was between 200 and 1,000. So again, like if if you're listening to the results here and you're like, "Mm, I don't know if that applies to me, like there's a question of, are you a tech company roughly in that employee range? Because if you're not, then your mileage may vary on the claims being made here. But it hits customer education market very squarely. Like This is the circumstances that we're dealing with. And then when I was reading through it, I see focus is those of you in this audience, directors, managers, maybe some ICs here and there who are by far their program owners, right? I guess the next point is they were at, this is cool because they're looking at the audience of training customers, partners, and employees. So that would put it in the spectrum of also enablement-related or enablement adjunct. Well, I think you called this out. This kind of reflects potentially an emerging trend towards this consolidation of education responsibilities and actually unifying those different audiences. So now, even if you are primarily a customer education team, you probably are taking on some partner training responsibilities. You probably are also training internal employees, even if you aren't central L&D, like I'll give you an example, my team at Personio, we are also responsible for training our internal customer experience team. So we're not the central L&D team at Personio, but we do take a really strong role in educating our own teams about the product and also helping them with career development. So I do think Ted Blosser, when he was on the show, sorry to call out one LMS and another LMS's report, but you know, <laughs> pointed to this, this exact phenomenon where we're seeing more consolidation of customer, partner, and employee training. I think that's good. And, and we see that throughout. So other things, I guess we don't have to go through all the details. They had a pretty even distribution between companies. What do we say here? Between 5 and 10, 10 and 20, and 20 plus years, but a high concentration of those teams, which we know because we're in this relatively new or nascent field who are two to five years old. And then maybe you have a few of uh, a few companies of the zero to two brand new. Absolutely. And they also look at program yeah. optimization and uh, business impact. Like this is the kind of stuff that we're really interested in. You're starting to get into that. I'm seeing that throughout these reports, impact, 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 valued. What do we deliver? Yeah. And like, this is an important concept too, because I I feel like we all have different names for this. Uh, Like in my book, I 
called um, program metrics and value metrics, I think. Uh, I can't even remember. But <laughs> it's the, been a bit. They're pointing at the fact that you have two different... It's, <laughs> I haven't written that book in a long time. You have these different categories of metrics, right? You've got local metrics that help you figure out what to do with your programs uh, and how you actually make decisions about your content. And then you've got these more global metrics that actually point to what effect your education programs are having. So I actually, I like program optimization and business impact as ways to label these metrics. And so they split it up, right? They were looking at program optimization metrics as uh, essentially data about your courses and your content, about how accounts are engaging with your your content and uh, kind of how your your programs are performing locally. Mm-hmm. Whereas like with business impact, then they were looking at the tie to the customer lifecycle, the overall program success, broader impact on revenue and leads. So you're saying you're kind of looking like outside your program at this point. Right. And that's, so Dave, that's what, the real stuff, were, right? Yeah. And like you, you called this out, I think earlier, a really big focus area here was around measuring outcomes. So what did the report have to say here about the way that uh, we we're measuring outcomes? All right. The first thing, and I think what we should do here is kind of follow the report. I like that Skillajar had brought or bubbled up these main three highlights or takeaways, and we can use them to like kind of frame this up. So outcomes, big, big, big deal. And that's, again, something you're going to see throughout all of the reports. The most interesting thing that I thought I saw in here is only 41% of the respondents throughout are tracking usage data, product usage data revenue, and CSAT. Only 41%. That means almost 60% of folks out there are not. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is. That means, what is that? that means that people are looking at essentially the metrics that are provided locally, maybe within the LMS, but they haven't yet gotten to the point where they're actually connecting that data to their broader, broader business data. Right. And that's telling us that, you know, we, we always talk maturity models. Where are you at on, on your journey for your customer education program? And it's still showing that a lot of folks just by merit of how complex this is are still in the earlier phases of that continuum. That's one thing. Let's, yeah. let's maybe Mel, go through a few of the highlights. These are the things that I thought were, were cool. Apart from that, 41% not tracking, 80% use definitely use surveys for feedback, which that's great. 59% are not using any kind of analytic tools. Wow. And the biggest gap that they're seeing here, that's huge. Biggest gap is that is most people see this as a focus for development. They want to start tracking against revenue. So like 70%. Yeah. 70% want to, but, but they're, but most, most are not. And like, yeah, they want to, you're pointing towards a couple of things here that I think are really, we're going to see as recurring themes throughout all of the, the reports. One, I think, is the idea that all programs now have an eye towards, or most programs, I should say, towards how to drive increased revenue. There are still a lot of programs who aren't generating, but now increasingly you're seeing people thinking about it. And I think that has something to do with the macroeconomic climate, which we didn't really see addressed as much in these reports, I think, based on the timing of when they were constructed, but the undercurrent is there. There's some thoughts, too, probably about how this relates to education budgets, which we see increasing through a couple of the reports, and, and I think mm-hmm. we'll get there in a moment. But these ideas are correlated, right? One is, is just the, this idea that, okay, we're targeting more of an impact on revenue, and then we are also seeing a broader investment in customer education because we think we're going to get that ROI. So that's really encouraging. That's a great sign that more programs are headed in that direction. 
maybe a little alarming that so few programs are are anywhere near that yet. But the, the, the part that I think is is perhaps more alarming is just that you're seeing so many programs out here who still have not collected, connected, and visualized their data, to, to borrow a term that we've used on. Yeah, we used that at... <laughs> for for a couple of times. I really think this is important if and if we like keep the pace up. This yeah. is validating is that look, folks know this is a problem. We all know this is a challenge. It's very difficult. So in the coming year, I think we should see a lot more focus a, a call to action on us and everybody in the community focus on how we can make that easier. How is it that we connect, collect connect that data? your systems, people? Yep. It's integrations, Salesforce and other things, but it's beyond that. There are all kinds of things that you can integrate, not just your CRM data. Yep. This episode is brought to you by TechSmith. That's right. TechSmith. You know them from Snagit and Camtasia. Snagit lets you create images, GIFs, and videos to show others exactly what you see. And Camtasia is the famous screen recording and video editing software made easy. Yeah, I love it, Adam. You know, I have to say my story here is that Camtasia kind of saved my soul. When I was working, trying to build my first program, I discovered Camtasia and other TechSmith products, and I needed something that was relatively inexpensive, easy to use, and powerful. Overnight, I went from doing tedious editing, recording, and just whatever I had available to me alone with little coaching, being able to make really super high quality videos in a short amount of time. That sounds amazing. And so if you want to create and share images and videos for better training, tutorials, lessons, and everyday communication, you can do that at techsmith.com. That's techsmith.com. Yeah, now we um, move on to, they, they talked about uh, training teams, infrastructure. We talk a little bit about what they covered there? Yeah, yeah. let's start first. I love numbers. I, I love talking from the number standpoint. And one thing that I thought was interesting was a whopping, oh, here's your point, Adam. Whopping 75% of existing programs saw budget increases over the last two years for customer education. That's a huge yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, yeah, I love that one. It is, it's huge. And uh, we, we saw that one echoed, I believe, in the TSIA report as well. So yeah, it is actually, actually all three of them might, might have tracked this. So that's really good to see. We also saw, I think, the continuing trend of customer success teams, I should say, being the main sponsors of customer education. So we've got most of our, our teams in the skill jar sample living within customer success. And, and actually, when we get to right. TSIA, we'll, we'll point out maybe a key difference there, because there you've got education services teams living within services, I believe, more primarily. Might point to a little bit of a difference between the types of customer education teams that are being built in tech companies that a company like Skilljar serves and the types of education services teams being built within a broader services organization that are members of TSIA. So again, it's like kind of looking at the sampling and trying to figure out who am I more like? You know, that's really interesting. And I, I, I don't want to steal our thunder and pull away from the, the report that we're going to read later. But I think juxtaposing skill jar this skill jar one which is really all in customer ed versus tsia which is more kind of straddling and riding the hump probably with more i would say more of a leaning towards veteran organizations that have had existing training functions for years decades maybe yeah and Less if you so. look in fact even at the skill jar data i think if you, they do a breakdown of, of company size and it's like 100% of the smaller teams sit within CS. And right. then you start to look at the skew for larger and larger education teams, larger and larger companies. And there, in fact, you start to see that 
more often those teams are actually sitting within services. And again, I think that kind of reflects that same skew that you you talked about. Yeah. The other interesting one that, that skews based on company size is team size. So they did a really interesting correlation here where they were looking at if you're a customer education team of one to five, how many learners on average are you serving? If you're a team of 11 to 25, how many customers are you serving, et cetera? So there are some interesting correlations there where it's like, if you're like teams of between one to five people have around a thousand learners, 11 to 25, it's around 3000 learners. And then these like Mondo customer education teams of 25 plus, now you're talking about 5,000 plus learners, but those two curves are not really equal to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like once you hit a critical mass of your customer education program and what it's doing within the organization, it's not as though you continue adding heads on your team to support increased customer size. Like it's not actually that the number of learners is, is completely proportional to the number of people you have on your team. It's that I think at a certain point you hit this critical mass where you realize that the education programs you're providing, you're making more of an investment in it to provide probably higher quality or more in-depth education to those customers. That's what I think we're seeing in those numbers. Yeah, I like that you bring that out because it, oh gosh, as, as I work more with maturity models and I advise companies that are different states, the model changes. It, it represents the fact that in customer education, it's a fluid, it's a fluidly changing function. Early on, you might have one person or no people. Later, you might have more people. Even later, you might have a limited set of people, but you're focusing on a different kind of uh, content, right? Mm -hmm. Or... Gosh, I was just listening to the localization episode that you know you and Courtney had done, and the sophistication of the things that you're doing at that level could be much more complicated too. That's interesting to talk about. Sure. Scaling your learning, scaling your reach based off of who you're doing, there's a correlation to the size and the what you're trying to achieve. You know, in the last part of this, I think we've got about five-ish minutes to round out this part. Uh, let's talk about training and uh, content and training formats, which was the third I pillar love of their formats. The first call out that I want to make is for investment over time next year, who's planning what video is number one. I mean, that makes sense. We're seeing video continue to be at the forefront of what, of what customer education programs are doing to grow their programs. We know that whether it's live action videos with a talking head, whether it's uh, software demos, whether it's tutorial videos, that this is both generally an effective way to drive learning, right? I'm thinking here of uh, Mayer's 12 Principles for Multimedia Learning, which actually put a lot of research behind why video or even narrated e-learning that's similar to video can provide a more effective learning experience and can lead to retention. Spoiler alert, I'm doing a solo episode on Mayor's 12 Principles soon, so you know, look for that in your feed. But like, what else? I mean, why, why else, Dave, do we think that people are, are investing so much in video? In a lot of ways, I'm going to bring out a trend here of something that I'm seeing, and this is a little off script, but it's relevant. One of the companies that we work with, Vidiate, has a product that allows you to actually quickly make videos from scripting. I talked with another company just yesterday, actually, and... What I found remarkable talking with them was that they have a video tooling engine built into their learning platform. And like it's all of these different vectors of folks saying, hey, I can make this really quick. Like TechSmith Camtasia putting a heavy investment in customer ed because why? Yeah. It's easy to create 
video and the YouTube and TikTok economy has really showed us the way. People okay, so you're, you're like making that. you're making a really good point. Like one, I think in general we're more used to learning from videos than we ever have been, but mm-hmm. maybe maybe even more significantly, we're seeing the entry costs of video starting to come down. It's more accessible. It's easier to make a video with more accessible software. You don't have to be uh, a pro in Adobe Premiere or something like that to be able to to produce yeah. accessible education video. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. But let's tweak off that. Let's rough up off of what you said, the accessible. There are some other things in this report along content and training format that I thought were interesting. One is, hey, accessibility. We're starting to talk on the podcast about localization, globalization, all these different things. Accessibility is a function that 45% of programs don't think about. Again, different from localization. This is for disability and such like that. That's interesting. What do you Especially think about that? given the push? Well, there's, I mean, there's a huge push towards people now recognizing why accessibility is important. So mm-hmm. often you you start with awareness and then you eventually lead to implementation. So I think the fact that 45% of programs don't focus on accessibility means 55% of programs. Is my math right? Yes. That's how you math. That's, just, that's, that's <laughs> how you math. Uh, it means that 55 programs, like more than half of programs are. And that actually, I think, I don't remember if they tracked this in the past, but that is most likely an increase, right? I don't think we're seeing this number going down over time. I think you're seeing more awareness of accessibility and why it's important. And a lot of this is actually coming from the instructional design world, which is also, I think, really starting to respond to, you know, some of the the lessons that we're learning from DEI advocates. Mm-hmm. And so what was previously, I think, an invisible problem is now becoming very visible and People are just making a lot more noise about why this is important. So you're starting to see programs pick this up more. Yeah, I think it's super cool. Okay, let's round this one out. A couple more really interesting things. From my notes, there was like a 5x increase in usage of VILT, you know, virtual instructor led Mm -hmm. 5x. That's, That's amazing. But then correlates to our experiences with COVID and the fact that we now know we can do training like this. Yeah. So this is we're we're seeing now uh, the the hangover of all the questions about COVID from the previous years. VILT is most likely here to stay. Even as we see people starting to return to the classroom cautiously, people know now that VILT is more scalable. It's more cost effective in many cases. So it'll definitely stay in the mix for those who have adopted it. Yeah. And that's great. That's really validating and rewarding because we know we're moving to those forms. And there's some other reports we'll talk about in a little bit here that play off of this. And I guess if I had to pick anything out in the last few seconds that we have on this topic, we're going to break it up a little bit. The last thing I thought was interesting is that uh, there was a big discussion about certification where yeah. 40, 47 That's exactly what I would have go- gone to, too. <laughs> what, I what like this about certification. Well, 47 percent of respondents use certification now. And I have a question about that terminology. And mm-hmm. 23% are planning to invest in it. So that's a significant portion of the market. My question being, Adam, is this truly certification or is this credentialing? Good, good question. I'm guessing that it is credentialing or you know, lowercase c certification lowercase where c. they're yep. issuing certificates or badges based on completion of a course, but they're not necessarily doing high stakes certification. And I, I can say that knowing I think some of the programs that are in Skillsjar's customer base, like uh, Procore Academy, I think is a good example of mm-hmm. a really robust lowercase c certification program where none of it is proctored, but it is role-based. You are getting credentials 
based on that. And I think if you look at some of the other attributes of the teams that Skilljar listed in their report, again, going back to the audience, a lot of these are not programs that are necessarily at the point where creating a high stakes proctored capital C certification program actually makes sense for them because by and large, people are not getting hired, fired, or getting work based on learning uh, their software or or going through the learning that, that these companies are offering. It's really more about, yeah. I think, providing a way for them to really put a, a check on their knowledge and then be able to share that with the world, which is still a really effective promotion strategy that I think we'll see in some of the other reports. Yeah. Which might be a segue into which one are we covering in the next episode, Dave? Let's shift to, I think we both had listed on our own. We, we took our own segments, our own notes. Let's go to the Thought Industries and uh, IDC report next. So okay. A- well, next week on C-Lab or next two weeks on C-Lab, Thought <laughs> Industries and IDC. So uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Leave us a five-star review. Thanks, Alan Coda, for the theme music. <laughs> That's the fastest ending I've ever heard. <laughs> We're trying to stay on time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>